Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers to humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Joseph Fidel. And I'm Brandon Cox. And we have an interesting and somewhat provocative show for you today. It'll be cool. We're going to be talking about evolution and intelligent design. Definitely hot topics. And the reason we're discussing these issues today is that we have a guest speaker coming in to connect this week. Rick Oliver, who has a Ph.D. in evolutionary biology and a master's degree in geology, is going to be speaking at our weekly meeting, Connect, this Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. We'll be meeting in the Vicedo room this Tuesday, so it'll be a little bit out of the ordinary. So Rick Oliver will be here. Again, he has a Ph.D. in evolutionary biology and was an evolutionary biology professor. And from there, he came to a perspective of confidently believing that creation better fits the empirical data than does the theory of evolution. He'll be talking more about that again this Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. in the Vicedo Room. Having Rick Oliver here this week, we thought it would be fun to talk a little bit about the subject. None of us has a Ph.D. in evolutionary biology like Rick, like Dr. Oliver, I should say. My degree was in chemistry, and Joseph? Uh, I'm studying biology, uh, organismal biology. So as we get started, many of you have heard of evolution referred to as a fact, and anyone disagreeing with it is a fool. Anytime you get to that perspective, things are drastically wrong. Charles Darwin himself said that ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. And I think that's often been the case with those that have ideologically pushed an evolutionary agenda. And they've been very confident, but I think that confidence has been based in ignorance. An ignorance that would not allow any other data or any other perspectives to even be discussed. Good science always maintains scientific integrity and considers all options. For example, the theory of evolution cannot be tested or reproduced under laboratory conditions, and therefore it does not follow the scientific method. It is, by definition, not science. So some people would say some aspects of evolution are science, like natural selection, Last week, I had some people telling me, oh, evolution is proven because natural selection is true. And I told them, well, natural selection is true. All natural selection is, is the reality that different organisms are better suited for the environment than others. Natural selection always weeds down. It never creates new species, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And so natural selection is true. It just, however, is not a valid mechanism for evolutionary progress or diversity. Good science is never conducted in order to prove a point, and it never starts with a presupposed assumption, which is what happens when we get to the evolutionary perspective. There's this presupposition of naturalism. We will only accept natural reasons for what we see. You'd never say that about a car. You'd never look at a car and say, we're only going to accept a natural chance-driven process as an explanation for the existence of that car. If you see that car, you're going to know some designer with intelligence created that vehicle. I know, Joseph, you've been writing on that a lot recently, and we're going to talk about some issues with design. But before we do that, we wanted to start with some of the reasons that evolution comes up short. Now, all theories of origins require faith. Neither is a science. We cannot go back to either Genesis or the beginning of life on this planet and show exactly how they came to be, not with any kind of scientific rigidity, at least. So there's an aspect of faith that's required in both. I am not going to tell you that the Bible is a scientific textbook. It does have a tremendous amount of science in it, 
And at the same time, its major focus is the spiritual truth of the universe that each one of us desperately needs a Savior, and that that Savior is the man, God in human flesh, Jesus Christ. That is the focus of the Bible. At the same time, science also requires an aspect of faith. So my encouragement is that intellectual honesty and integrity are necessary. There have been many times in history that poor theories have existed for long periods of time because no one wanted to burst the bubble. Lavoisier and Laplace came up with the caloric theory of heat in 1786. This theory persisted despite overwhelming evidence which debunked it, similar to the theory of evolution today. The reason it persisted is nobody wanted to go against the scientific mainstream and in so doing, acquire the wrath of the scientific establishment. There are different things that created a lot of problems for the caloric theory of heat. There was no increase in mass when something was heated. Friction alone caused heat. And despite that overwhelming evidence, the theory was pervasive for many, many years until it was finally overturned and shown to be untrue. I think the same thing is happening today. Even though there's overwhelming evidence against evolution, it persists because nobody wants to lose their job in academia. Nobody wants to be blacklisted. Nobody wants to be called a kook. And we've gotten to a place where as soon as you disagree with the status quo or the conclusion of the establishment, you're labeled a lunatic. And because of that, a lot of people wanting to preserve their academic standing are unwilling to really go wherever the evidence will lead them. So today we're going to talk about some of that evidence. Now, a quick note about time. If you're a creationist or an evolutionist, I want to start by saying I personally do not think time is a big issue in this debate. From the Christian perspective, we could be living in an early universe or in an old universe, and there are verses that support both of those positions. However, to the evolutionist, there has to be a long period of time to allow evolution to occur, which coincidentally, I know that some statisticians have looked at the universal probability bound and has there been enough time to have all the interactions necessary for evolution to occur? And they've said absolutely not. Even with the large time frames that evolutionists come up with, there still has not been enough time. We're not going to focus too much on the issue of the age of the Earth. I don't think that is all that relevant in this discussion. That's my personal perspective. If you disagree with me, you're fine to disagree with that. But it's definitely not something we're going to spend a lot of time on today. You probably heard our show a few months ago on five reasons naturalism fails. A lot of what we do today may overlap with that. We're going to go through some of the same perspectives, but we're not going to follow them exactly like we did in that show. Talking about evolution, we must realize that evolution never even attempts to answer the question of where all the matter in this universe came from. That would be more confined to the realm of cosmology. The Big Bang, the Big Bang coincidentally, and we did a show on this too, proves the existence of God more than any other empirical data for the most part. Evolution is more a theory, or even better yet, a hypothesis about the organization of matter that's already present. So for anyone that believes evolution discredits the existence of God, or even more, disproves the existence of God, that is an impossible situation. All evolution could do, if proven true, and we don't believe that's the case, but even if it were, the best it could get you to would be how matter that already existed changed. So it still doesn't get us out of the reality that a supernatural explanation for the existence of this universe is necessary. 
the Big Bang, the second law of thermodynamics and entropy, things like that show us and tell us that this universe has not existed forever. There was a unique point in history when everything you see came into existence. The matter you see came into existence. That was the origin of this universe. So neither the origin of the universe nor the design and information, the different laws that govern everything that happens in this universe, none of that is explained by evolution. Rather, it's assumed as having been there from the start. We believe those are best explained by the existence of a creator, a designer. Going from there, though, why not believe in evolution? Well, evolution has some big problems. First of all, if evolution is true, it has to explain how life came from non-life. Again, assuming that all the material around and all the laws that govern the interactions between the different atoms and molecules in the universe, assuming all that was in place, how did that first life come from non-life? This is called abiogenesis, and it is something that has left evolutionists perplexed for decades. We've seen some of the reactions where you can get a few different organic molecules out of a supposed primordial soup, but organic molecules are a far stretch from a living organism. And what you have to have is you have to have a cell develop. We've never seen a cell with less than 500,000 nucleotide bases. I'm not going to get too deep in the chemistry here. If you've ever taken organic chemistry, you'll probably remember talking about chirality. When we think about all those nucleotides having to line in perfect enantiomeric order, the statistics become unfathomable. The statistics are literally 1 in 10 to the 37,000th power that all those different nucleotides would line up even if they already existed. So assuming that those organic molecules were formed spontaneously out of this primordial soup, the statistics of them just linking up the right way to possibly form the first DNA strand, which is still a far shot from a cell, is 1 in 10 to the 37,000th power. That universal probability bound that we talked about earlier, I've heard it mentioned as low as 10 to the 80th, but a generous universal probability bound would be 10 to the 200th. We're talking about the number of chemical interactions that have happened in somewhere between 13 and 15 billion years. The probability of those components aligning the right way out of that primordial soup, even if they did form, we're giving them that, would still be 200 times the universal probability bound. In other words, it will never happen. It's statistically impossible. And getting from there to the first cell is even more difficult. In fact, the statistics of that have been calculated at 1 in 10 to the 112,000th power. Unbelievable. Nearly 600 times statistical impossibility. Now, when I've debated atheists publicly on this issue, and I mention those statistics, they always pull a very funny maneuver. They say, oh, well, anything's possible. Okay, well, if anything's possible, Brandon, why is an intelligent designer not possible, right? Mm -hmm. So they get into this very unscientific and statistically absurd position where anything goes, yet they want to turn the tables and say that we're not going to believe that an intelligent designer could have created everything that we see. Even if we could get to that first life, even if we had that first cell, again, this is 600 times statistical impossibility, we would still need a mechanism for evolution occur to develop that from one organism into another. And specifically from the start, from a single-celled organism called a prokaryote to multiple-celled organisms or eukaryotes. 
that mechanism of evolution is lacking. Again, people try to say natural selection alone will do it. Natural selection never does that. So they try to add it in and say that natural selection working on gradual mutations produces this effect. We don't see that. So talking about natural selection, uh, here's a quote. It says, we see that no new information got into the genome. Indeed, it turns out that each of those mutations actually lost information. They made the gene less specific. Therefore, none of them can play the role of the small steps that are supposed to lead to macroevolution. And that was Dr. Lee Spetner. So there are no examples of positive mutations or even a series of mutations which increase the genome, resulting in physiological changes that are evolutionarily advantageous and are passed on to the offspring and are preserved. Dr. Spetner continues saying, In all the reading I've done in life sciences literature, I've never found a mutation that added information. All point mutations that have been studied on the molecular level turn out to reduce the genetic information, not increase it. And every time we bring that up, when people talk about gradual mutations working alongside natural selection to create true evolution, every time we bring up the impossibility of that, the atheist response is always something extremely minor, like an E. coli bacterium that metabolizes citrate where it didn't before. In that case, what actually happened was it always metabolized citrate only under different circumstances. And the mutation in that case actually destroyed a feedback loop that stopped the metabolism. So now with a reduced amount of information, it allowed the metabolism. So yet again, we don't see an increase of information in that instance, but rather a decrease in information, which debatably had a positive impact on the E. coli bacterium. But the reality is that it was not an evolutionary increase. It was rather taking away from what was already there, not something new being formed. The Theory of Evolution by Gradual Mutation Stephen Jay Gould wrote, is effectively dead despite its persistence as textbook orthodoxy. And Stephen Jay Gould was no minor player in this. He was arguably the most famous evolutionist since Darwin, admitting this theory is effectively dead despite its persistence as textbook orthodoxy. And just to be honest here, my atheist friends would say I'm quote mining, and the reality is this is not quote mining at all. He was saying that to lend credibility to his own theory of evolution, namely punctuated equilibrium. But the reason he came up with punctuated equilibrium is because he was willing to admit the flaws in the theory of Darwinian evolution. So this isn't quote mining. He was literally trying to show some of the problems in the currently accepted theory of evolution in order to support his own theory, which, by the way, also does not have a valid mechanism or any other empirical confirmation. So finally, we get to the fossil record. And we've all seen the different fossils from human back to our ancestors, right? We've seen all the different fossils. And I don't want to get too deep into that. But the reality is most of those are either fully ape or fully man or some artistic mixing of the two. And we've seen that in different cases like the Nebraska man formed from one tooth and a couple bone fragments from a pig. This is now known to be a fake, but it is still included in some textbooks, interestingly. And so there have been these interesting fabrications to try and point to this and without getting into all those supposed transitional species, 
since we are getting short on time, I wanted to just go to a quote by Richard Leakey, the main guy, the foremost paleoanthropologist that has ever lived, and definitely, again, one of the strongest evolutionists since Darwin. And Brandon, why don't you read us what Richard Leakey, the expert on those transitional fossils, has to say. He says, If pressed about man's ancestry, I would have to unequivocally say that all we have is a huge question mark. To date, there has been nothing found to truthfully purport as a transitional species to man, including Lucy, since 1470 was old and probably older. If further pressed, I would have to state that there is more evidence to suggest an abrupt arrival of man rather than a gradual process of evolving. So the reality is that evolution leaves us with five big questions. It cannot tell us where matter came from. It cannot tell us where design and information came from. It cannot tell us how life came from non-life. It cannot tell us a valid mechanism for how evolution occurred. And finally, we don't see the truthfulness of evolution or the evidence for evolution preserved in the fossil record. So evolution is an empty theory. A lot of times, though, what Christians do is they just say what's wrong with evolution, and they don't say why we should believe in intelligent design. And so we're going to talk about that next. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR, 91.9 and 93.9 FM here in Durango or KDUR.org online. We're thrilled you're listening in. We're talking about evolution today. It's been a phenomenal discussion so far. And while we're on this topic, I'll just go ahead and invite you once more to connect this week. Connect is our weekly meeting. We usually meet at 7.30 in the Student Life Center, but this week we'll be meeting at 7.30 in the Vicedo Room, where we'll be listening to guest speaker Dr. Rick Oliver, who has a Ph.D. in evolutionary biology and a master's degree in geology, who will be speaking on why evolution is not true. Joseph, you've studied a lot about why we should believe in design, and you're a biology major, so take it away. Yeah, Nate, um... Uh, you know, I haven't got my degree yet, but uh, I'm pretty far into it, and uh, I've done a lot of reading outside of that, so I feel fairly confident uh, about what I'm about to talk about here. So we've seen that evolution fails as a mechanism to providing species and the apparent design that we see in this planet. So what is this alternate theory? Well, I would like to present design, and design specifically by an intelligent designer, namely God. So what is design? We know that when we see objects that are complex have small parts working together where all the parts serve the whole, the function of the whole organism, uh, we know that what we're seeing is designed. When we see objects like watches, cars, TVs, books, we would never doubt their design. And in fact, the reason why we think this is because within them we see small parts working together. If you've ever opened up a TV, you, you know that when you're looking at it, it's like, wow, what is all this stuff? This didn't just come together randomly. So when we look at an organism as a whole, we see things just like this. When you open up, uh, say, a mouse, for example, we see organ systems. Now let's start at the beginning. We see cells within the organs. And within these cells, we see cellular metabolism, the Krebs cycle, ATP being created. We see organs within that, mitochondria, all sorts of things like that. So within the organism as a whole, the organs work together, forming organ systems. And these organ systems all work together, functioning the good of the whole organism. Now... When looked at from this level, it looks a whole lot like other things we've seen in the world that are designed, such as, again, watches, cars, TVs. So I'd like to present an argument that goes as follows. Now, premise 1.1 would be 
Complex, intricate, and ordered things containing parts that work together have been designed. Premise 2, biological organisms are complex, intricate, and ordered things which contain parts that work together. Now, premise 3 says that thus the most reasonable conclusion is that biological organisms have been designed. Now, the only way to get around this is to show that Premise one is, in fact, false. Complex, intricate, and ordered things containing parts which work together have been designed. If we can show that this is false, then we can show that the argument falls apart. But, as we have just seen, Nate has done a very good job showing us that evolution fails as this mechanism. And I would like to posit that design shows has more evidence for the life that we see on the planet. I'd like to take a minute real quick to talk about faith. Both of these ideas and both of these theories both require faith. But the question is, what is the most reasonable to believe, given the evidence or the lack thereof? So in face of all other examples of design in non-living things, I'd say it's reasonable to think that design is the best explanation. For an example of this, let's look at cellular design. I will first look at DNA as an example. So coded within a single DNA strand is an immense amount of information. In fact, the information packed within a single amoeba nucleus is more than all 30 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica. A DNA strand has molecules within it that go in specific orders that code for certain genes. Now, I'm sure we've all seen pictures of DNA strands. Um, it looks like a double helix, a ladder twisted up. Well, each one of those rungs uh, is represented by a letter, A, T, C, and G. So if counted, these molecules would be more than the letters within an encyclopedia set. But what needs to be noticed is that the letters in an encyclopedia form specific patterns, which in turn form words, sentences, and paragraphs, which in turn convey a message to the reader that can be put into thoughts and actions. So in short, they contain a message. So similarly, the DNA and its message forms patterns, which forms genes, and are ultimately expressed by the organism as a whole, which are expressed in color, shape, metabolic rate, and reproduction, amongst others. It would be nonsense to say that an encyclopedia is anything other than designed, and just as nonsensical to say the same of a DNA molecule, which, we must take note of, has multiple thousands of parts which need to be present and working together to even exist. Now, it is molecules similar to DNA, such as proteins, enzymes, and RNA, which evolutionists claim predated and ultimately led to life. This could, however, not be done by gradual selection of beneficial changes, because it's not quite clear that one could say that one shape of molecule is more beneficial over the other in order to be selected upon. Beneficial to what and to whom? A non-living object has no need to reproduce itself, which eliminates the possibility for mutations to occur during reproduction. Now, this reproduction is explained as the mechanism for selection in evolution. And we've already seen that evolution fails. So is there another way which could account for the apparent design in molecules such as DNA or protein? Well, some people claim that given enough time, molecules could randomly self-assemble to form simple proteins and enzymes. The early ocean was essentially a giant vat of molecules floating around and bumping into each other. So these building blocks of the molecules were being constantly brought up to the surface from deep within the Earth's mantle and core via volcanoes. They were also being deposited by asteroids and cometary nuclei which have been known to be rich with amino acids and other essential elements. But is it reasonable to believe that given enough time they will self-assemble? Well, let's take a look. Carl Sagan gives an impressive example of what it would take to get a simple enzyme made of 100 amino acids to self-assemble. He likens it to assembling a predetermined strand of beads 100 long containing 20 different types of beads while blindfolded. 
So imagine if you had an unlimited amount in different piles of these 20 different beads and you were trying to get a predetermined strand that is 100 long. Well, the likelihood of placing the first correct bead in the correct site is 1 in 20. That's not too bad, you say. Well, placing the first two beads in the correct places is 1 in 20 to the 2. It's starting to get a little harder. At the end of the 100 bead strand, we see that the likelihood of placing all beads into the correct place is 1 in 10 to the 130th. And if you remember, Nate was talking about improbability factors, and the lowest one that he gave was 1 in 10 to the 80th. And we see that 1 in, one in 10 to the 130th is a rather big number. And according to astronomers, there are not even that many elementary particles in the universe. So if these particles were bumping into each other every microsecond since the beginning of the universe, the strand would not self-assemble. Now, that's a long time. According to astronomers, that's around 14.3 billion years or so. So how can Sagan continue to believe in this random self-assembly of molecules, which would eventually lead to life? Simple, he says... Most enzymes and proteins have an active site, which is responsible for doing all the functions, that is usually only about five amino acids long. So in order to get those in the right place, the statistics are one in 10 to the five, which is only about three million. And that's a pretty small number in the scheme of things. So what do all the other amino acids do? Well, they're involved in the folding and structure of the enzymes, which he thinks isn't necessary for the function. They cannot simply be disregarded as unnecessary. It is the bonds within these molecules which dictate the shape and structure that control the effect of a protein or enzyme. Even if one of these molecules somehow beat the odds, it would not survive very long in a primitive ocean environment. And it seems extremely unlikely that something as statistically improbable would happen more than once. Plus, there is still no means of reproduction for this inanimate string of atoms, which would be alone in the world with no other similar molecules to interact with. So what do we conclude? The thought of something as monumentally unlikely as the random assembly of molecules seems unreasonable. We have no evidence of this ever occurring, and we can't reproduce it in a lab. But design does not offer any more in terms of evidence or reproducibility. But we do know that in every other non-biological situation where complex, intricate parts are found working together as a unit, there is no question of its design. So, unless there is already a bias towards naturalism, the most reasonable conclusion is that biological organisms and the molecules within them have been designed. George Gaylord Simpson, an evolutionist, says, Every paleontologist knows that most new species, genera, and families, and nearly all categories above the level of family, appear in the records suddenly and are not led up to by known, gradual, completely continuous transitional sequences. So if you're interested more in this topic and discussing these kind of things, I want to re-invite you to connect this Tuesday night at 7.30. We're going to be in the Viacito room. And once again, we're going to have Dr. Rick Olivers, and he will be discussing uh, evolution and things like that. The Bible clearly says, you know, there is a God. And not only is there just a God, but he's a personal, loving, holy, good God. And he has a plan and a purpose for your life. And specifically, that purpose is that he wants to have a relationship with you. And the only thing that comes in the way of that purpose and that relationship is that uh, we're sinful. And just another term for sin is that we've missed the mark. We've rejected God. We've gone the other way. That's just the way we are. And that sin, the Bible says, uh, results in death. And it says that everyone has sinned and everyone's fallen short. It separates us from God. 
And that's really bad news because we can't live up to that purpose and we can't experience that relationship with God. That is until Jesus came along and he fulfilled that. He took the place of our sins. He took the payment for all of our sins for us. And now we can experience a personal relationship with God through Christ because of what he did for us on the cross. It comes down to a decision that you can make even right now. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. That is a promise. Jesus also says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears me and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him as friends. So Jesus is personally knocking on the door of your heart, inviting you into a relationship with him. And it's just a matter of decision and specifically a decision through prayer, which also is just pretty simple. It's just talking to God. So you can accept him through prayer, just saying, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins, and I want to experience this personal relationship with you. So please come into my life and forgive me of my sins. I would also like to invite you to the River Church this week. They have a service at 1045. And how to find it, it's on 860 Plymouth, and that is off of Florida. So if you're going down Florida, you can turn off onto Aspen. And once you're on Aspen, it's the first left. You'll find Plymouth, and you'll see the River Church. I would strongly invite you to come. It's a great environment. Thanks so much for listening. In closing, I wanted to encourage you that an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Tune in next week. We'll see you then.